We're at the beginning of our message here. We are, uh, we are at part eight of our series, Abiding in Christ. Uh, I want to do a quick rehash this morning, and then we'll, uh, we'll start talking about what we're going to add into the picture of our understanding about what it means to abide with Christ. So far, we've understood from this series that a connection with Jesus is beneficial. And it's especially beneficial if we have a daily connection with him. Not like, a, oh, I was in church at Easter or a Christmas kind of connection. That doesn't do anything for us, but regular and consistent connection does. We also learned that God's word, the Bible, it nourishes us spiritually, just like food nourishes us physically. We, uh, we understand that spiritual, being spiritually nourished allows us to address poor character and uh, flaws in our life. It allows us to establish godly priorities. Uh, we learned that we can hear God's voice, that he speaks truth and wisdom and direction and encouragement to us so that we know how to live our lives. We learned about the benefits of journaling. We've learned recently about the benefits of obedience. And we also learned that we abide in Christ so that he can renew our lives. And today, what we're going to be talking about is the benefit of practicing confession and repentance. Okay? Now, those words probably mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, depending on the denomination or the church that you grew up in. But we're going to begin this conversation today, and next week we'll complete it. It's a, it's a little bit too much to tackle all in one Sunday morning. So we'll start just by looking at um, the, the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. One portion of this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples says, and I'll put it up on the screen here, sorry. It says, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Just a little bit different in Luke than it is in Matthew, because often we hear, forgive us our sins as we forgive those. But here it says, for we also forgive those who sin against us. The word forgive in the second half of this verse is in the present tense. So we're going to get a little bit nerdy here with some grammar. We've got, we got to pay attention to this. We've got to understand that the word forgive in the second half of this verse, the underlined forgive, is in the present tense. What this means is that we are to continually and regularly, currently and presently, forgive those who are sinning against us in our lives. Jesus says in Matthew's version of this passage, uh, to, or verse 614 says, for if you forgive other people when they forgive or when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. When we forgive others, what we're doing is we're actually meeting the condition that God gives us so that we too can experience his forgiveness. Of course, when we ask God to forgive us, like in the first half of Luke 11.4, 4, uh, we are confessing to him our sin. We're admitting, God, I've made a mistake, I've sinned against you, and I need your forgiveness. Simply in asking for, for forgiveness is a recognition that we have sinned against God. Now, some churches believe that at the moment of salvation, we were made holy and perfect, which makes confession of sin unnecessary. That is actually not true. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what the Bible says so that we can understand 
what, what is true when it comes to confession and forgiveness and as it pertains to our life today. This is, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a warning here, and then we're going to pray. This is going to be a little bit more of a heavy theological lifter today. We're going to wrestle through a few terms and a few verses in Romans, which is, a, which is an amazing book, but you can't go fast through that book. So you know me. Typically, I, I'm, I think I'm kind of self-aware of, of what I'm like when I'm preaching. I get wound up. I get emotional. I get, I get hyped up on things. I'm going to very intentionally speak slower and with less emotion, for, at least for the first part today so that we can hopefully grasp these ideas. Is everyone cool with that? So it's not like I'm sad or or I'm off or anything. I'm very intentionally trying to just slow down because these are some deep things that we're going to try to understand together. So if you're all right with that, so am I. Let's bow for prayer and then we'll give this a shot. Father, thank you for your word that says that you forgive us. And thank you that you also call us to meet a condition of us receiving forgiveness from you. Jesus, I don't know what all of us believe about confession or repentance and the purpose of it in our lives today. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to forget things that are not true if we've been taught incorrectly. I know that's that's had to happen at different points for me in my life. And I pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit is going to anoint the words that I'm going to speak, that you want to anoint, and that you're going to plant those things in our hearts so that we will not forget them, and that we will understand these concepts, not just so that we have head knowledge, that's not the goal, but so that you actually change the way we live, because we're applying the ideas of scripture into our lives, and we are going to be different because of it. Thank you, Father, for the word that you've given us. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start by talking about how at salvation we were forgiven for our sins. When we put our faith in Jesus, the Bible says that God justifies us. There are three pieces that I would like to discuss about what being justified means. Okay, so it's a big word. That's why we're going to go slow and we're going to figure this out. First, to justify means to declare someone righteous. If you're taking notes, these are some of the big things you'll want to jot down because this is going to help you out later on. So to, to, de- to declare someone righteous is one of the pieces of what it means to be justified. In Romans 3 verse 26, it says this, He, God, did it, and it is sent Jesus to die for our sins, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just And to be the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Two pieces. God is just and he justifies us. That's what he's saying here. So God sent Jesus as a sacrifice. This was a demonstration that God is righteous. And he won't ignore his law that says sin must be punished. Do you understand what we're saying here? The Bible says that those who sin are going to be condemned unless they receive forgiveness or a sacrifice for their sins. If God were to say, I know that they sin, but ah, whatever, let's just welcome them into heaven anyway, God would not be just, as this verse says. But because he is just, that's why he sent Jesus as a sacrifice. He did not ignore the punishment of our sins. Jesus took the punishment. And in doing that, then God was not only just, but he was the one who justifies us. Okay? So we're all tracking here so far? <laughs> we're going to figure this out. 
It's an important thing to note that God justified us as well without us doing anything to earn it. We didn't do any work that made God say, okay, they've done enough. Now I will justify them. It was not like that at all. This was strictly a gift. Romans 3 verse 28 says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What that means is we didn't, we didn't follow the law perfectly in order to be justified. It was God's goodness to us in response to our faith that allowed us to be justified or to be declared righteous in his mind. So to be justified means that God has legally declared us righteous, all those who have put their faith in him. The second piece of what it means to be justified is that we are declared not guilty. So let's contrast righteousness and condemnation for just a moment. Romans 8 verse 33 and 34 says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. To condemn someone means to declare that person guilty, just like in a court of law. The opposite of condemnation is justification. So then, to justify someone is to declare that person not guilty. Because this declaration is the verdict of the judge of the universe, that's God, it means that we no longer have a penalty to pay for our sin. Right? Romans 8 verse 1 says... So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. So we know that we are not guilty in the eyes of God based on the faith or the trust that we put in him. Very important. And the third piece of this whole justification picture that we need to highlight this morning is that to justify means to declare forgiven. Now, being declared not guilty means that all, who, all the charges against that person have been forgiven. And that's exactly what scripture actually tells us. Romans 4, verse 5 to 8. However, to the one who does not work to earn salvation through obeying the law, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. I love that. Notice that Paul equates, um, oh, sorry, where was I here? Notice that Paul equates God justifying someone with forgiving that person of their sins. David is the one who ties those two thoughts together. This is what justification is all about, declaring a guilty person not guilty, thereby forgiving the charges of the sins that they have committed, which condemned them in the first place. So this is the great news of the gospel. When someone says, have you heard the good news? Or when we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, this is it. We were guilty people who were declared righteous, not guilty, and forgiven. We couldn't earn that. It was a gift of God because he says, have faith in me, and this is what you will receive. That's good stuff. Though Jesus, or through Jesus, we have been declared righteous, 
we have been declared not guilty, and we have been declared forgiven. This is the declaration made about us at salvation when we put our faith in Jesus. However, this is where things get a little interesting. Scripture says that we still need forgiveness after salvation. Saints, that's all of us who have put our trust in Jesus. Saints is just another word for Christians. Saints still need to repent and confess of their sin. First, believers, we have to understand this, believers, we still sin after salvation. I hope this isn't a a huge surprise to you, but if it is, just stick with me. We're going to figure this out together. There's ample evidence to show that believers continue to sin even after the moment of salvation when they put their trust in Jesus. For example, Paul advises us to walk in such a way that would please God. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Think about this. The fact that Paul instructed the believers to walk in a way that would please God means that it's also possible for believers to walk in a way that would not please God. Oh, yeah. It's like you just, we look at it very common sense, and it makes total sense. Right? In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives a list of sins that Christians were to refrain from as these actions grieved the Lord, which to grieve the Lord simply means to cause him sadness or sorrow. If you look at that verse in a couple different translations, sorrow, sadness, or grieve are all used in the same verse. In his seven letters to the churches in Revelation 1 verse 3, Jesus rebuked five out of the seven churches, not just not non-churched people, but the churches, because he was not happy with them. Uh, and for example, Jesus says to the church in Sardis from Revelation 3, 1 to 2, I know all the things that you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of God. So there's another example. We see that Christians, a church, they're not living perfect, holy lives. They're still sinning even after salvation. That's okay. We're just coming to terms with our current situation as well. John also wrote in 1 John 1 verse 8 to 10, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, Jesus, out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. John said that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth, that's the gospel, the the truth that can save us, as James calls it, that truth is not in us. In other words, he's saying that if we claim that we have no sin, that statement itself, I don't have sin, is sinful. Do you see what I'm saying here? But, But then John went one step further, saying that such a claim, saying I don't have sin, or any one of us if we were to say that, when we say that, we actually make Christ out to be a liar. Now how does us saying that we don't have sin make Christ out to be a liar? It says because... As we saw in the Revelation example, Jesus is speaking to Christians or churches full of Christians about their sin. 
So if Jesus himself is saying, here's a bunch of churches that need to deal with their sin, and then here I am saying, well, I don't have sin, who's lying? Is it me or is it Jesus? It's not Jesus. That's your first clue, okay? It's me. So to claim that we no longer sin after our salvation moment is a direct contradiction to what Christ says. So then, naturally, as I'm thinking about this this week, you know, we see that, yes, we're saved from our sins at at salvation. We're declared righteous, not guilty, and forgiven. But we still sin after salvation. Maybe the question I thought that we should ask is, why? Why do we still sin after Jesus has saved us? Well, here's here's the explanation that we can see in Scripture. At salvation, our old... Or our, our old nature and its tendency to sin was crucified by God and replaced with the new nature of living of the living Christ in us. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's a famous verse, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we don't have to sin any longer uh, because our sinful nature has been crucified. That's the, that's the permission and the lifestyle that God gives us through his forgiveness. It's dead, and Christ is the one who is alive in us, making it possible for us to live righteously. However, we still live on earth, and we still live in these human bodies, right? Uh, we call them, and sometimes in the Bible we'll see that our body or our human nature is called the flesh, the flesh has formed sinful patterns, actions, and, re- and reactions in us right from childhood. How many of our kids, the first word that they learn is mine or no, because they don't like something that, that's happening, so they say no, because they want something that they can get, right? That is our sinful, fleshly nature. That's just who we are, and that's who we've grown up experiencing in our life. So... These patterns, these sinful patterns of bad actions, reactions, and emotions, they have been reinforced through years, and for some of us, decades of sinful living without coming to know Jesus. So Galatians 5 verse 24 tells us that we are to crucify these sinful patterns, these actions and reactions. We are supposed to crucify them yet again. Now, why must we crucify these patterns? Because God expects us to grow in character. Growing in character, if you're looking for like one fancy word to sum up that whole idea, it's called sanctification. If you've ever heard that, uh, that word in, a, in the Bible or if you've heard a preacher say sanctification, all it means is growing in character to become more like Jesus. And that's what Jesus wants. He doesn't want us to stay as the sinful, rotten people that we were that we needed saving from. He wants us to become more like him. That's why he saved us. Okay? So when we believers sin, we can crucify our sinful patterns onto the cross again, not the cross of Jesus, but we can crucify these things in dealing with them through confessing them to God and receiving his forgiveness. So the second piece of this is, so we saw that, yes, believers still sin after salvation. The second piece in this section that we need to understand is that since we still sin, we need to confess and repent of our sin. Earlier that we saw that if we continue to forgive others, then God will continue to forgive us. That's condition number one of us receive, or, or for one, that's condition number one for us to experience God's ongoing forgiveness. Uh, however, there is a second condition to God's forgiveness. It's that we 
must confess. We have to admit that, yes, we are sinners and that we continue to sin. 1 John 1 verse 9 is very clear of this. It says, if we confess our sins, just admit that, yes, we are making mistakes. He, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So there it is again. God justified us at salvation. And then again, at confession, he is faithful and just to continually justify us. This is an ongoing process. So the word confess here in this verse is a verb. There's that nerdy grammatical stuff again, but this is important to know. Verbs are action words. They're not just intellectual thoughts, but this is actually something that we are meant to do continually and regularly as we confess sin to God. James instructs believers to confess sin as a condition for healing to take place. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? So that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Paul tells us to examine ourselves for sin before taking communion together, which we're going to do next week, so that we can avoid the discipline of God. We, we can read about that in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 32. Jesus warned the church in Ephesus to repent. This is in Revelation saying, in Revelation 2, 5, Consider how far you have fallen or regressed. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and will remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand is, is symbolic. It's the spirit of God. Can you imagine, friends, that if we're here in this church and we were making mistakes as a church, which we all do, but we were not willing to repent or confess about it, it God is saying that he's willing to remove his spirit from a church. That's a big deal. If God were to remove his spirit from this church because we were too stubborn and unwilling to confess and repent of our sins, we should just close the doors and do everyone a favor. But that's why we have this glorious chance to deal with sin that goes on in our lives. Because God will say, he doesn't say, I'm going to remove your lampstand if you continue to sin. No, he says, I'll remove your lampstand if you don't confess and repent. We don't have to be perfect, but we still have to continually rely on a perfect Savior. Jesus has already died for our sins. He's risen back to life, and he's ascended into heaven when he issued this report card to the Ephesian church. Okay, so this is something that Jesus did after he died for our sins. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to die for you someday. I'm going to forgive you of your sins someday. It's like, no, I already have. So keep walking with me. Don't give up on the things that I've already taught you about. What this means is it, Jesus is pointing us to repentance as a current part of his ministry. It's not just a once saved and then, and then everything's fine after that kind of arrangement with God. We actually have this ongoing relationship with him that is full of moments of, Oh Lord, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't realize that I did this again. Thank you for pointing it out. I confess of it. I repent of it. I turn away from it and help me to do better next time. After looking at all of this, I see proof that repentance and confession and the need for forgiveness are still required even after salvation. Are you, are you tracking with me? Is this making sense that we still need forgiveness even after salvation? Good. I'm seeing some nods. Love it. However, 
If we, are, if we were declared not guilty and our sins were forgiven at salvation, then why do we continue to require additional forgiveness after salvation? Doesn't God's forgiveness cover everything at salvation? Why do we need to continually seek his forgiveness even after we're saved? Well, that's an interesting point, and I'm glad you asked the question, because the Bible makes a distinction between two different kinds of forgiveness. It talks about judicial forgiveness and relational forgiveness. Don't worry, these are big words, we're going to figure them out. So we've discussed basically this morning, without us really you know, putting a pin on it, we've discussed two different kinds of forgiveness that we can see in the Bible. The first one, judicial forgiveness, is where at salvation, God declares us righteous, not guilty, and forgiven through our faith in Jesus. That's judicial forgiveness, that legal declaration. That's it. That goes along with the line where it says, no one can ever steal us away from God. No one can ever steal us away from his love because he has legally said, they are mine. I forgive them. I love them. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. That's the judicial forgiveness. But there's also this relational forgiveness. And this is the forgiveness that we seek from God for sinning against him after salvation. Now, relational forgiveness is all about maintaining the fellowship that we entered into with God at salvation. The only thing that we can, that can affect our overall standing with God, the only thing that can affect our salvation is if we abandon or if we consciously disown Jesus by denying him or living in ongoing and unrepentant rebellion. Let's look at marriage as an illustration. Marriage is so perfect for so many things. It helps us understand God so much better. Suppose that a husband ignores his wife and takes her for granted. I don't know why we're always the bad guys in these illustrations fellows, but just bear with me here, okay? Perhaps even this husband, he says some unkind things to his wife. Their relationship fills with tension, and it's, ooh, it's not comfortable, okay? She no longer responds to him, and they are living, un- even though they are living under the same roof, there's little to no communication. Are they still legally married? Yes. Are they in love? No. Let's be honest. Are they communicating? No, they are very cold towards one another. And do they have what we would consider a good or great relationship? No, absolutely not. They are relationally distant, even though they are legally still married. That's what we're talking about in our relationship with God. If we sin after salvation, are we still legally adopted children of the Heavenly Father? Yes, it was Him who legally declared us to be His Yet the quality of our relationship with him is suffering tremendously. That's why scripture says that believers, believers can grieve or put a strain on their relationship with the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Ephesians 4.30. That verse, Ephesians 4.30, is right in the middle of a discussion of the sins that believers were supposed to get rid of because their lives and their church were being slugged by all of this garbage. Verse 25 to 32 of Ephesians 4 lists falsehood, anger, theft, unwholesome talk, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice, being unkind, being uncaring, and being unforgiving as the sins of the Ephesian church. When we do such things to other people in our church or outside of our church, it doesn't really matter. 
what we're doing in that moment is grieving the Holy Spirit or putting a strain on our relationship with the the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God loves people. All people were created in the image of God. And if we treat each other so poorly without respect and love and forgiveness and mercy and grace, all the things that we need from God, if we're not willing to extend those things to one another, God says, man, my heart is in sorrow because my people, my people don't get my heart. That's how we grieve the Holy Spirit and put a strain on our relationship with him. Grieving the Holy Spirit affects our relationship with him. However, it does not affect our standing with him. That's that relational and judicial or judicial difference. We are talking here about being in harmony with our heavenly father in a relational sense. That's really what we're getting down to. Jesus made this whole idea of judicial or I keep saying that judicial and relational forgiveness in he makes it very clear when he actually washes his disciples feet in John 13. Now in a culture where people were walking long distances on dusty roads in sandals it was customary for the host to arrange for water to come and wash the guests feet. Many of us have concluded that this story is about servanthood. However, servanthood is not the point of Jesus' demonstration, which might surprise you, and it surprised me, but I looked at this differently after someone taught me about this. One of our clues to why this is not about simply being a servant is that Jesus said, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. That's John 13, 7. Clearly, if Jesus intended this to be a lesson about being a servant, it would be obvious. It would be clear and we would all get it. However, the fact that he says that we won't comprehend what he's doing until later shows that he wanted to correct any notion that this is just a very simple surface level act of servanthood. No doubt Jesus intended for this to be a demonstration uh, or some sort of a metaphorical teaching of a higher spiritual principle. When Peter objected to what the Lord was doing, uh, Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. That was verse 8. And then Peter kind of goes overboard. He swings the pendulum all the way in the other direction. He says, well, then wash me all over. And, And then Jesus kind of brings it back and says, hey, just calm down a little bit here. And he says in 13.10, a person who has had a bath only needs to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. That part, the underlying part, though not every one of you, that's referring to Judas who was about to betray Jesus. So what is Jesus getting at here? What is the point of this then if it's not about being a servant, Jeff? Well, elsewhere in the Bible, Washing always or often, sorry, not always, often symbolizes the cleansing from sin. Some examples of that would be 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, Ephesians 5:26, and Titus 3 verse 5. Notice Jesus says that the one who bathed doesn't need to be washed all over, as Peter had suggested. They just need to have their feet washed. That's an important thing here. All of Jesus' disciples, except for Judas, were in good standing with Jesus. 
They were, they loved him, they cared about him, they had his best interests in mind as he loved and cared for them and had their best interests in mind. Jesus had received his disciples as his own, forgiving their sins, and in his words, they were clean all over. They had been fully cleansed. John 15 verse 3 says, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What Jesus is teaching is that when we get saved, it's like we are being bathed from head to toe. He washes us as white as snow, as it says in Isaiah 118. We're clean all over in the eyes of God. Remember, he declares us righteous when we are justified by sins. Or from our sins, sorry. But as the washing of feet is demonstrated, we still need regular cleansing from sin that accumulates from simply living in this fallen world. So it's good for us to realize that we have a responsibility to care for the relationship that we have with Jesus. We need to recognize that we still sin against him and we need to address that sin. Perhaps we fail to pray or we become critical of others or we act in selfishness, or we are insensitive towards others' needs, thinking only of what's going on in our life. Or we're filled with self-pity, and and we wallow in in just a a bad place that doesn't think about anyone else, but we we make things all about ourselves. Or maybe we just simply offend someone. It can come out in a thousand ways, this this lifestyle that we live that, that dirties our feet. It doesn't dirty us from head to toe because Jesus has cleansed us from head to toe. It's just contaminating one part of our life. And we need to deal with it. That doesn't mean that we need to get saved all over again every time we sin, right? How many of you can remember going to Bible camp or Sunday school or praying with your mom or your dad beside your bed and you pray to receive Jesus into your heart and you're like, ah, but I sinned today, so maybe I should do that again. I, we've been there, right? We, we think that this is how Jesus operates, that unless we're perfect, he needs to forgive us completely from head to toe all over again. But Jesus doesn't need to die on the cross over and over and over. He's done it once and it's been good for all time. Now those who have entered into relationship with him, they just need to heed his warning and come in confession and repentance and say, Lord, I know that you still love me. I know that I'm still in right standing with you legally, but relationally, this one thing has come between us and I want to deal with it. This is all that we're trying to understand today, okay? In 1 John 1, verse 6 to 7, it says, So we are lying if we say that we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. John says here that as as the believer is walking in fellowship with God, he is receiving cleansing from God. But as a Christian chooses not to walk in relationship with God, that's where things get dicey. As we abide with Jesus, we give him more and more access to convict us of our sin, leading us to repent of our sin. All the reason more for us to spend more time with Jesus so that his voice is more real, so that we respond to his conviction more quickly, so that we don't go for days or weeks or months or years 
with allowing sin to accumulate. So barely the top of our head is still cleansed. And Jesus needs to almost do a complete new work in us. When we walk with Jesus, when we abide with him daily, we're actually maintaining that relationship the way that God tells us we're supposed to. Have you ever been walking down the street and and a lousy thought enters your mind about someone and in that moment you just feel like, oh my goodness, where did that come from? Why did I think that? Or or when when you hit your thumb with a hammer and and a curse word comes out, it's like, why did I say that? I could have said anything. In those moments when that happens and we realize, oh, that's not good. Or when we say something negative to our family or hurtful or selfish or prideful or simply in response to our emotions instead of to Jesus, it's in that moment that we need to be walking with Jesus and say, oh, Lord, I just right now, I made a mistake. I confess it. I know that I did that and it's wrong. I'm sorry. And I repent and I turn away from that. I don't want to live like that. This whole idea of of abiding with Jesus, I think is actually summed up uh, amongst this topic of confession and repentance in Romans 2.4. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. How else will we experience God's kindness unless we spend time with him in relationship with him? There is no other way. There's no shortcut. There's no silver bullet. You have to spend time with him. It means you might have to get up earlier, and that's okay. I used to only get up at 7.30 so I could make it to work at 8, and God convicted me, says, Jeff, you're a youth pastor, and you don't even want to spend time with me. How could you lead anyone else to do the same if you're not willing to do that in your own life? It's like, Lord, thank you. Thank you for convicting me. And in that moment, I confessed it, and I repented. I said, Lord, what is the right model? He says, go to bed at 10 o'clock instead of 11.30. Wake up and look forward to my day that I have planned for you instead of living in the selfishness of your own plans. God is a good father. If you don't have relationship with him, it sounds mean, but you know what? God loved me in that moment more than I had experienced for a long time. I was so glad that he cut to the chase and he convicted me so I could confess and come back to him. No wonder Jesus makes a big deal about relationship, fellowship, abiding with him, remaining with him. Because if we don't do that, we're slowly tuning out the voice of God. And we won't experience his kindness and we won't be led to repentance. We're going to continue this conversation more next week.